Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 592 for the 13th of May, 2018. This week, Microsoft launched Windows 10 version 1803 last week. This week, we'll take a look at the new features that seem to be the most useful and significant. In short circuits, magazine fans might save money, clutter, and the environment with texture. That's a service for Android and iOS devices, but not for desktop or notebook computers. Malevolent bots are increasing daily, and it's not just the ones from Russia. In spare parts, only on the website, a company that provides tools used by the people who repossess vehicles with past due payments has proposed a new use for the technology. The National Aeronautics and Space Agency has awarded grants to three groups that will be looking for life beyond our solar system. And testing has been established to ensure that high-performance video displays live up to their promises. Last week, after nearly a month's delay, Microsoft launched Redstone 4, otherwise known as Windows 10 version 1803, the Spring Creators Update. This version has new features. There are even some new features for command line users. And some features have been removed. Let's take a look. I'll start with the most important new features, timeline, typography, settings, and command line. Then we'll take a look at what's missing. The update is one that Microsoft refers to as a feature update, meaning that it is more than just patches and security updates. It is, in fact, a lot more. You'll now have better control over which applications start with Windows. When your computer starts, several background processes and applications also start up. Each has an effect on how fast the computer becomes available for use. The control panel now has an option that lets you specify which applications start with Windows. You'll find it in Control Panel, Apps, Startup. Before disabling a startup application, you need to make sure that you've confirmed you don't need it at startup time. Disabling an online file storage link or a backup service could have some pretty serious implications. There are dedicated applications such as Startup Delayer. They offer more flexibility. Instead of just turning applications on or off, Startup Delayer allows some or all startup applications to be delayed for a set period or until CPU usage has dropped below a certain threshold. The improved control offered natively by Windows is welcome, but far less than what the third-party applications offer. You're going to find Timeline. By default, you'll be partially opted in to using Timeline. To opt in all the way, or to opt out, you need to go to Settings, Privacy, Activity History and select or deselect one or both of the options you'll find there. Those options are Let Windows Collect My Activity from This PC and Let Windows Sync My Activities from This PC to the Cloud. If you opt partially or fully in, you can then specify any accounts on the computer to share information with the timeline. 
The timeline is a feature that has been added to Task View. Open the Task View by clicking the icon that looks like a film strip. You'll find it near the Windows menu icon if you have enabled it. If not, just press the Windows key and tab. When Task View is open, scroll all the way down if you'd like to allow Timeline to look back more than just a few days. Timeline is similar to the history feature you find in most web browsers. It tracks most applications and documents that you've opened in them. Timeline collects documents you've used together into what are called activities. So if you use several applications and various websites while working on a specific project, you'll find them in an activity. This is at best, though, a work in process. Activities and the timeline in general do a fine job of tracking Microsoft applications. They are less robust with non-Microsoft browsers and other applications. I consider this to be one of the most important additions to Windows, but more for its promise of what it might do than for what it is right now. So now might be a good time to start using it, but keep your expectations low. Typography is a topic that's dear to me because typefaces affect the tone of a publication, an email, or a website. One of the best designers I ever had the opportunity to learn from, Jan White, liked to say that the best typography is invisible. In other words, he felt that good typography did its job without being obvious. The same is true of overall design. If what you notice is a beautiful typeface or outstanding design, then the designer has failed. Although some people think I'm old enough to remember when Gutenberg developed movable type, that is not actually something I recall. I do remember, though, when typesetting was done by typographers as part of a multi-step process. First, I would send typed copy that I had estimated to fit in the available space. Then the typesetter would type my copy into a typesetting machine, eliminating some of my errors and introducing some of his own errors. And yes, in those days, typesetters were almost always male. Third, I would mark up the galley proofs provided by the typesetter and send the galleys back for an update. After repeating steps two and three, perhaps several times, I would be given a final galley for use in pasting up in the publication, mechanically pasting up with glue or wax. From beginning to end, that process would take a week or more. By the mid-1980s, Ventura Publisher and Aldous Pagemaker began the trend that would put typesetters out of business but the available typefaces were still limited. Adobe created an expensive set of PostScript typefaces that were eventually replaced by what were called Type 1 typefaces, and finally by TrueType, which was created by an association with Microsoft and Apple. And then OpenType, those are for Microsoft. You might think that by the mid-1990s, typography was a mess. And if you actually thought that, you would be exactly right. Currently, anyone who uses Adobe Creative Cloud automatically has access to dozens, perhaps hundreds, of typefaces. Now, that's fine as long as your subscription is current. If it lapses, your typefaces will disappear. Presumably, Windows users will continue to be Windows users. So maybe the typefaces that come with Windows or are installed specifically in Windows might be a bit more permanent. 
Well, now you can buy typefaces from the Windows Store. Not many. In fact, when I put this report together, the Windows Store offered just 11 typefaces. Nine of them were free, and the others were just two bucks apiece. In some cases, the offerings expand what's already present on the computer. For example, Windows comes with Georgia, and the free offering from the Windows Store adds light, condensed, and black variants. Georgia was designed for Microsoft in the mid-1990s. It is optimized for screen viewing, and installing the Georgia Pro typeface expands your choices from four variants to 20. That's not all, though. The control panel's font preview functionality has been improved to display either the typeface name or text that the user specifies in any size from 8 to 72 points. Additionally, if you have any open type variable typefaces installed, you can vary the preview weight and width in addition to the size. If you want to use those variable functions, though, the application you're using must support open type variable technology. And there are some command line improvements. Yes, Windows still has a command line. The DOS command line became the command shell, and while the command shell is still present, Windows PowerShell is recommended as a replacement. PowerShell uses more verbose commands, but it also understands the old DOS and command syntax, as well as many bash commands that are familiar to Linux users. Bash, by the way, stands for Born Again Shell, which was the replacement for the Born Shell. So if you want a directory of files in a PowerShell window, these commands are all identical. You can type DIR, that's the old DOS and command version. You can type LS, that's what you'd type in Bash. Or you could type get hyphen child item, that's the PowerShell term. But Windows also offers a full Linux command line, and that's where the enhancements are. The Microsoft blog describes the changes, and because they'll be mainly of interest to developers, I'll just mention them briefly here. There is, however, on the TechFinder Worldwide website, a link to the Microsoft blog. It is now possible to share environment variables between Windows and the Linux command line. File permissions can now be set using bash commands on Windows file system files. And it's now easier to create virtual machines for use with Linux instances under Windows. In addition to Ubuntu Linux, the Debian distro and the Kali distro are also now available. But I said some things are gone. Well, one of the most significant features eliminated is Home Group. Although it was a well-intentioned effort to make it easier for users to share files and printers across a home network, it never really caught on in part because it really wasn't much easier than using standard network techniques. Once version 1803 is in place, Home Group no longer appears in the File Explorer, in the Control Panel, or the Network Troubleshooter. However, any files, folders, or printers that had previously been shared via the Home Group will still be available by using the name of the computer, folder, and file in the usual network format. That format, by the way, is two backslashes followed by the computer name, a single backslash followed by a folder name, another single backslash, and the file name. Also, printers that had been shared via home group will still appear in your print dialog box. 
The option on a mobile device to connect to suggested open hotspots has been removed. Users will still be able to connect to these non-secure locations, but you'll have to do it completely manually. That's essentially a reminder that this is not a good way to connect. It's a security issue. The XPS viewer is no longer enabled by default. XPS was a short-sighted, illogical attempt to replace Adobe's portable document format, PDF, with a new format that nobody knew anything about. You can still create and view XPS files if you enable the technology. But why would you want to? Several features will remain in place, but they have been deprecated, so no further development will be done. One example is the IPv4-6 transition technology. IP addresses are being converted from the IPv4 format to IPv6. This will allow for a larger range of addresses. IPv6 is now supported, so the transition functionality is no longer needed. Both Windows Contacts and the Contacts API have been deprecated, still usable, but Microsoft is pushing users and developers to convert to the People app. Of the removed and deprecated features, Home Group is likely to be the one that causes the most concern. Generally, though, these are all features that won't really be missed. In short circuits, these are challenging days for magazine publishers. Besides being expensive to produce, the cost of paper, printing, and postage make them expensive to deliver. For subscribers, there's the cost of the subscription itself, and then the environmental concern about what to do with all those old magazines. Texture will change some of that. Texture is a service. For $10 a month, subscribers can read any of the 175 magazines offered, from Bad Week and Allure to Woman's Day and The Yoga Journal, Vanity Fair, Texas Monthly, The New Yorker, National Review, Newsweek, Time, and even a few Canadian magazines such as Maclean's, if you'd like a slightly different perspective on the news. PC World, PC Magazine, Macworld, Fast Company, Car and Driver, and even Entertainment Weekly are there. There are magazines on the list that I would not subscribe to because I wouldn't get much out of them. But a texture subscription lets me read an article or two from an occasional issue. There's also nothing to throw away or recycle at the end of the month. One of the view options that texture offers is a highlights page that shows articles that might be of interest to you based on what you've read previously, articles that are popular on texture, longer articles that are good for weekend reading, daily news articles, and the top stories from various categories. You'll see articles listed here, even from magazines you haven't selected as one of your favorites. The second view is the one that I actually use most frequently. It is called My Library, and it consists of the magazines that I read most frequently. Clicking one of the magazine covers will take you to that magazine's page, where you will then have access to the current issue, and back issues as far back as they've been a part of the texture plan. 
When you open an issue, you'll have the opportunity to download it or read it online. The third initial option is viewing all magazines, whether you've specified them as favorites or not. You can choose to view all of the magazines in a long, long list or examine them by category. The settings pane is where you can specify whether magazines are downloaded automatically when you open them. Downloading makes the issue available when you don't have an internet connection, but it does consume storage space on the device. The application has four choices for maintaining storage. Minimal space, if you already have a lot of photos and music on the device. There is the standard option, that's what they recommend for most readers. You can choose more space, for those who like to read a lot when they're offline, and maximum space, that essentially downloads everything. There's an option on the settings page to delete downloaded magazines, but Texture does manage space by deleting older issues to conform with the storage decisions that you have made. Texture does have a few shortcomings. First, the free trial period is uncommonly short, just seven days. Most companies choose 15 or 30 days for a free trial, and it seems to me that Texture would attract a lot more subscribers with a longer trial period, one that's long enough for people to really become used to having it. Second, it runs only on Android and iOS devices, so you can't install it on your Mac OS or Windows computer. You can, however, use it on up to five devices, so I have it on an iPad, an Android tablet, and my Android phone. Reading on the phone is, as you might expect, a bit of a problem because of the small screen size. The third issue is sharing information is somewhat difficult. In the past, sending a link from an article provided only a link to the Texture website. Now the recipient will also be given a readable screenshot of the page. That can be a problem if the article is more than a single page. It's also not possible to save the article as a PDF. Well, that's understandable. Or to copy and paste text from an article into an email message or a social media site. I do find that annoying. Is this going to help publishers? Well, that's impossible to even guess. Electronic distribution means no more expenditures for paper, ink, press time, and postage. But it's likely that print versions will continue to be produced for the foreseeable future, and the only real savings will be the incremental costs. Meanwhile, subscription income will drop. So, the bottom line for texture. If you are a magazine reader, you're going to like this app. I give it four cats. Not every magazine publisher is included, but the choice is broad at nearly 200 magazines. If you read 10 different subscription publications per month and the average subscription price is $20 a year, well, the cost would be about $200. You'll pay $120 a year for a Texture subscription. Possibly the most serious problem with Texture is just finding all the time you need to read the articles that you'd like to read. You'll find additional details on the Texture website. Here's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. They can be useful, but many are used to cause trouble. We are all familiar with the bots from Russia that continue to cause problems on social media sites, but bad bots are widespread and affect more than just social media sites. A report from cybersecurity firm Distill Networks 
says that bot traffic increased 10% in 2017, now accounts for more than 20% of all Internet traffic. Some industries, the report says, see more than half of their website traffic coming from bots that attempt to scrape data from sites without permission in order to reuse it, as well as those that are actively engaged in fraud and theft. These bad bots can steal credentials, create denial-of-service attacks, create fake accounts, extract content from the victimized sites, engage in credit card fraud, and place fake orders that result in real orders being denied because the inventory has been allocated to the phony orders. The report differentiates between good bots and bad bots. Good bots attempt to provide a site's information to others, for example, a search engine's indexing bot. Bad bots attempt to cause harm. But even good bots can be problematic because they can cause ad click data to be misrepresented and inflate site visitor data. Most of the commercial bad bots don't originate from foreign countries. That may be a surprise. About half of the malicious bot traffic originates from data centers in the United States. The report lists the 10 most severely affected industries. Gambling. More than 50% of the traffic on gambling sites comes from malicious bots. Airlines. More than 40% of airline website traffic comes from malicious bots. Financial and health care. Malicious bots account for about a quarter of all traffic on these sites. Healthcare sites receive another 57% of their traffic from good bots, and less than 20% of the traffic is actually from real people on healthcare sites. Tickets, e-commerce, travel, and adult entertainment. These market segments see about 20 to 25% of their traffic from malicious bots, and insurance and real estate. Those industries see about 10 to 15% of traffic from bad bots. And real estate sites generally have nearly 40% of their overall traffic from what are considered to be good bots. If you'd like to read the full report, you do have to register. Visit the Distill Network website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. No registration needed for spare parts, though, but it's only on the website. A company that provides tools used by the people who repossess vehicles with past due payments has proposed a new use for their technology. The National Aeronautics and Space Agency has awarded grants to three groups that will be looking for life beyond our solar system. And testing has been established to ensure that high-performance video displays live up to their promises. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.